I'm thankful for all of you who are here. We've already had two outstanding messages from uh, Steve and Chris. I'm so thankful for that. And just want to take a couple of moments to mention a couple of things before we really get started here. I'm also thankful for our own team from Grace Bible Church. Our, our church has a heart for serving our community, and, and really there's, a, there's an overflowing love for the body of Christ. And it won't be great in heaven when we're just one giant church under Pastor Jesus. Uh, that'll be a fabulous time. But until then, we have to make efforts to do that. And so we've had over 50 of our members working for months uh, to put this on for you, so I'm thankful for them. Among those on our team that I'm thankful for are our musicians who have gloriously led us in worship and praise of our triune God. And many of you are aware of this, but just one week ago, one of our dear brothers in Christ, a gifted guitar player and singer, uh, was killed in a tragic car accident uh, here in Bakersfield. Uh, Adam Lang, our dear brother, had married his sweetheart Brighton just six weeks ago today. And he was 28 years old. Uh, Our musicians have put his beloved 12-string guitar right there just in his honor and memory. But he would have been here with us. But we also believe in the sovereignty of God. And we believe that God had a plan beyond what we can understand. We're thankful for the short life that Adam lived to the glory of God and for the continued impact really his life is having even now that he's at home with Christ And I think that really brings us very appropriately to our message for this morning. So just take a moment and bow with me in prayer, if you would. Our Father, it's our joy to come to you once again and to do the only reasonable thing we can do when trying to figure out what God says, and that is to open your word. There is no other means to know the intricacies of our incredible triune God. And it's our prayer that this morning, Lord, every person here would be comforted, would be encouraged, would be overjoyed, with what you offer us, not only just in salvation and not only in sanctification, but in in comfort and in joy and in a peace that passes all understanding. Might that be the result of your glorious word this morning, we pray in Christ's name, amen. I think it's probably a terrifying experience. It's never happened to me, but it's happened to American troops overseas. It's happened to, in fact, just almost 10 years ago to this very day, a a wonderful, brave company of a British parachute regiment happened to them. It happens to civilians who take a wrong turn just simply while out on an evening stroll. It's happened since the 1860s. It is the experience of accidentally walking into a minefield. In fact, even the earliest landmines haven't stopped posing danger. In 1960, five landmines were discovered on a Civil War battlefield, 97 years old and still ready to explode if somebody had stepped on them. I I think you can take a moment and just imagine what it would be like to find yourself in a minefield, all the emotion that must well up. You didn't mean to be there. You certainly didn't plan on it. And your, your mind is going crazy when 10 seconds earlier you were at peace and completely lacking in in any sort of distress and now you're in shock and you're in distress and you're in panic and all you can think about is how am I going to get out of here and many have reported even an immediate physical reaction of trembling and shaking and being unable to control your bodily responses now I don't think anyone here it's very unlikely that any of you have been in an actual minefield but there is a minefield that you have been in before or you're in now or you're going to be in the future. And that is the minefield of suffering, of tragedy, of some sort of sudden unexpected grief due to agony that has abruptly and immediately become your all-consuming reality. 
It may be a marriage that's falling apart despite your best efforts. It may be waking up to realize that the pain medication you got while you were in the hospital has now become an overwhelming addiction. It may be feeling perfectly fine one day and then having a debilitating major health episode the next. It may be a diagnosis that means massive and expensive and dangerous treatment. It may be a child who's grown up to be completely the opposite of what you hoped he would be. Or as in our church this past week, it may be a tragic car accident which takes the life of a newlywed. I don't have to give you a long list because all of you can make your own list. You can make your own list of tragedy. I think this is maybe the greatest challenge in the Christian life. How how does my faith impact suffering? How do trials in my life intersect with salvation? How do those work together? How does my faith in Christ intersect with cancer or with an unfaithful spouse or my wayward child or my own shattered dreams? Of course, the short answer is that the one who's received the free gift of salvation given by Christ's death on the cross, you have resources. You have resources from our triune God himself to provide you all the comfort, all the assurance, all the consolation that you need. You have it all. In fact, there's a text of Scripture which I think is is representative. It's characteristic. It's descriptive of the great comfort available to you from our triune God. It's the single most cherished portion of the Bible in in all of history. It's simple, it's straightforward, and yet it's inexhaustible in the depths of the riches of the knowledge of God. It's the scripture that I think the suffering are most likely to gravitate to. It's a part of the Bible that probably some of you here have memorized. It's a poetic expression of absolute trust in the Lord. And that is, if you would turn to me with me to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. This is the most famous of all the Psalms, said to be the most famous passage in the entire Bible, penned by none other than King David. It has perhaps the most famous line in all of the Old Testament, memorably beginning, the Lord is my shepherd. Now we all acknowledge and we we understand that we've been blessed with the fullness of of the full revelation of the New Testament. So very naturally, as New Testament believers, we naturally read the Lord Jesus Christ is my shepherd. And we, we get that, we understand that. For King David, he was writing just generally speaking of his God. We understand though the greater inspiration of his text. Jesus says of himself in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The writer of Hebrews calls Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep. 1 Peter 5, 4, he's called the chief shepherd. Prophetically, the Old Testament prophet Micah says of the one who would be born in Bethlehem that, quote, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. So we could preach a wonderful message on Christ our shepherd from Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is so filled with with the riches of God's comfort and it serves also as a mirror. It serves as a reflection of how God deals with his children when they're in dire need of reassurance and relief. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to use Psalm 23 this morning as kind of a base of operations to examine the glory of the Trinity in giving comfort. The glory of the Trinity in giving comfort. And so let's just read this together. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, we don't usually schedule tragedy or trials. I mean, none of you married couples have ever said, Honey, would you look at the calendar and see if November seems like a good time for a stroke? And if it is, would you you do it before Thanksgiving, get it over with, or should we do it after the last turkey sandwich so I can really enjoy myself? We don't schedule trials that way. It doesn't work that way. It's the major challenges, the the times of your most crushing anguish, they're like being dropped in the middle of a minefield. One second ago, you were happy and joyful, and now you're panicked. You can be paralyzed with fear, with dread, with grief. You can even lose the ability to think straight for a minute. You don't know which way to go, but you can't stay where you are. You have to walk through the minefield. You don't have a choice. It's an affliction which, like it or not, is now immediately part of your life. Now, I'd like to suggest that at that moment, you have three basic needs. First of all, you need a restful peace right now. You need calm. Secondly, you need an appointed path out of the minefield. You need a way out. And the third need you have is you need a future promise. You need a promise that you will make it out of the minefield. So you need a restful peace, an appointed path, and a future promise. When you're dropped into the minefield, when that moment or that growing realization comes, the trouble is here, the triune God has already been at work on your behalf for your good and for his glory. God has already been paving the way, first of all, for a restful peace, a restful peace. At the end of Second Thessalonians chapter 2, the apostle Paul prays for the suffering church at Thessalonica. They were being persecuted. They were new in their faith, but they were standing firm in the gospel of Christ despite all the opposition that was coming against them and against them. And the apostle Paul mentions both the father and the son in a wonderful prayer. He says in Second Thessalonians two sixteen and 17, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts. What a prayer. What a joy. Paul reminds the Thessalonian believers that God the Son and God the Father loved them. Now in the context of the earlier verses, it's speaking of loving them to salvation from sin, graciously appointing them for salvation. Paul reminds them that God the Father and God the Son gave eternal comfort. Now, what is eternal comfort? It's comfort about eternity, and it's comfort that lasts for eternity. Jesus himself declared our eternal comfort, coming from him and from the Father. John 10, 28 and 29, he said, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And he goes on to say, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Both the Father and the Son are said to comfort our hearts. And it's a word that means urge our hearts, implore our hearts, beg with our hearts. To do what? To remember that the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father have have loved us. They have given us eternal comfort and good hope through the grace offered to us. 
See, the restful peace that we have from the Father and that we have from the Son is based in salvation. That if my sins are forgiven, if we're honest, what trial or what sorrow can actually hurt me? There isn't one. It doesn't exist. And obviously, because of the work of salvation, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit constantly and continually confirms these truths in our hearts. He gives us changed hearts. He gives us radically God-altered souls that now, through the Holy Spirit, bear a completely different kind of fruit. Before we were in the Lord, instead of the fruit of, we we bore the fruit of unbelief and fear and dread and pride and self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. If we were in the middle of a minefield, we would say, how can I get myself out of this? But now Galatians 5 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and what? Peace. See, the Father gives peace, the Son gives peace, and the Spirit gives peace. And now the role of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in giving you this restful peace, it's encapsulated, it's illustrated in Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is the song of a sheep under the loving protection of a shepherd, and then it secondly is a song of a, a guest under the loving protection of his host, And now the beloved King David of Israel, a man after God's own heart, but a man with enemies, a man who was at times literally hunted by those who hated him, he begins, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord, Yahweh, God's covenant name with Israel. It evokes to the Old Testament reader a rich image of the protection of a covenant-keeping God, a God who keeps his promises. He's the God who says of himself in Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The Lord is my shepherd. The people of God were well acquainted with shepherds. Of course, David himself, long before shepherding God's people as king, shepherded regular old sheep in the hills of Bethlehem. I want you to think about this for a minute. Do you find it shocking that the name of God, Yahweh, in Hebrew, is right next to the word shepherd, really the lowliest of all people? That the Lord God who created everything, who made you, who made me, would condescend to simply be our shepherd. How glorious that he reached down out of eternity to touch us in a way that that we can understand, that we can grasp, that the creator of the ends of the earth is looking to every need and every necessity. And to that end, David says, I shall not want. There's no great truth to uncover here. It just is a simple statement of assurance that the shepherd won't ever withhold anything we need. There won't ever be a time when on God's checklist of everything that you need that he missed one. He won't discover, oh, there was another page here on the checklist that I forgot about. That won't ever happen. And so God the shepherd provides for the sheep restful peace. And then we get these picturesque images of peacefulness and tranquility. He makes me lie down in green pastures. As David well knew, sheep are naturally fearful. They won't lie down in any place that, they are, that they're not convinced is safe. I remember as a child reading this verse, and I had this picture in my mind of a shepherd jumping on top of a sheep and forcing it to lay down. I don't think that's what David had in mind here. This is the picture of a shepherd convincing his sheep that it's safe to lie down. It's a picture of a shepherd who soothes and who comforts the sheep. 
when King David in his later years was fighting off a government takeover by his own son Absalom, David wrote of the peace that God gave him in Psalm 4, verse 8. He said, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I love that verse. What's one of the first things that we lose when we're in the minefield? We lose our ability to sleep, don't we? But Psalm 4, 8 says, By the way, David was surrounded by his enemies. I will lie down and I will sleep. But not just lie down anywhere. In green pastures. I mean, it'd be kind of anticlimactic if he said, he makes me lie down on a bed of nails. That doesn't make sense to us. He makes me lie down in green pastures, rich meadows where there's plenty of provision. There's no need to keep searching for sustenance. And as the sheep of God's pasture lies down in the soft green grass, fully provided for, fully sustained, the sheep notice the barely noticeable, the quiet waters. Not a scary rushing river, not white waters that have to be crossed at great peril, but literally waters that are at rest. Serene waters that are safe and cool and refreshing. And now that you're lying down in the green pastures beside waters at rest, the shepherd restores your soul. And when he says he restores my soul, this can be used to speak of spiritual salvation. In Hosea 14, in Joel chapter 2, this Hebrew phrase means to bring to repentance or bring to conversion. But it's also used to speak of the spiritual refreshment of the believer, the, 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 the quenching of thirst. Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Same word, reviving the soul. It's the idea of returning to the place of peace where you once were, of regaining your spiritual equilibrium, of recapturing your trust in the Lord. It's a return, a regaining, a recapturing. Sometimes when I've counseled with people, when they're in pain and they're hurting, they've often said to me, oh, I wish I could just return to yesterday. Well, that's what this is. The restoration of your soul is saying, even though you're stuck in the minefield today, you still can return to yesterday. I think the message of these opening verses is clear. God gives perfect respite and provision. doesn't matter what's happening outside this, this beautiful green valley of peace where the quiet waters are. In this place, it's just you and your shepherd. This place of restful peace is available anytime. It's available all the time. The doors to this valley are never closed. They're never locked. The grass is always green. The waters are always quiet. But best of all, the shepherd is always there. And right in the middle of your minefield, the riches of the quiet comfort of your shepherd are always accessible, always offered. Your first need in the middle of your minefield is a restful peace. You have a second need, and that is an appointed path. An appointed path. Okay, I'm standing in the minefield. I've come to a place of restful peace, but the mines are still there, and eventually I kind of like to get out of this thing. You need to know there's a way out. You need to be guided through this minefield. It's scary. It's painful. It's daunting. You don't want to walk through the minefield, but you don't have a choice. Well, the Father gives an appointed path. In Matthew 6, Jesus taught his disciples a framework for prayer, an example to follow, and he begins, Our Father in heaven Hallowed be your name. And the prayer ends. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, obviously, God doesn't lead us to sin. 
But what Jesus is promising that the Father will do, what he'll protect us from, is that in the midst of any trial, he'll protect us from anything that might lead us to sin. That he'll surround us, he'll be a hedge about us. This is a prayer that the Father might keep us from the danger of self-sufficiency and self-trust in the middle of a trial, but to keep on the path of total dependency. And listen, that may be God's entire point of your trial, is to learn to depend on him, to lack in self-sufficiency. Let me put it this way. The Father will hold your hand if you'll only ask him. and He won't let you stray from the only safe path through your pain. The Father gives an appointed path. The Son gives an appointed path. At the end of Romans 8, the Apostle Paul speaks of the permanence of salvation, the the inability for a Christian to become unsaved. And he says famously at the end of Romans 8, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. This is the key phrase, in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, the New Testament speaks of the Christian being in Christ over 90 times. And here's the logic. If Christ has guaranteed that nothing can separate you from his love, that you're completely safe, completely secure, if the New Testament brims over with the fact that you're in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, do you think there's ever a time in the middle of your minefield that Jesus hasn't got it all together? Do you think there's any time that Jesus looks around and says, Hey, did anybody see Bob? Where'd he go? Send some angels out. I lost track of him. That never happens. It can't. The Father gives an appointed path. The Son gives an appointed path. And the Holy Spirit gives an appointed path. Earlier in Romans 8, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Listen, the implications of this are staggering. If you think about this, the Spirit of God is praying constantly for you and always praying according to God's will. There are times when you hurt so badly, when when life in that minefield becomes so confusing, so befuddling, that you literally don't know what to pray at that moment, your, your joy, your comfort is that the Spirit of God is praying precisely the right prayers, exactly what needs to be said, giving you the right ordained steps. And once again, Psalm 23 provides us with an encapsulation, an, an illustration of the role of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in giving you an appointed path. Look with me at the second half of verse 3. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Now, this can mean righteousness in the sense of uprightness and worthiness, but the context here I don't think really supports that. This isn't the righteous behavior of the psalmist. It can also mean, just very simply and I think more elegantly, the right path, the accurate path, the correct path, the straight path. As a matter of fact, this literally says the wagon tracks of righteousness. The wagon tracks of righteousness, an alert shepherd would keep to those wagon tracks because as long as you stay on the wagon tracks, you always get home. A number of years ago, we took our family on a vacation in Colorado, and I'm I'm a very good planner, and so I planned to drive through the worst blizzard of that year. And so 
in driving through the worst blizzard and feeling the worry of my whole family, small children, just in our little minivan, we ended up getting to the point where all we could see were two things. We could see cars off to the side of the road. You couldn't possibly get off. There was no exit. There was no way to get out of this. So you had to keep going forward. And just ahead, you could see two dim little red lights. There was an 18-wheeler in front of us that apparently had a better view. And sometimes those lights disappeared. But you know what I could see? I could see the path that he had just made one second earlier in the snow. I followed that path for about four hours. And that's all I could see. The wagon tracks of righteousness, the right path. You're familiar with Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Now this doesn't mean that God will make your path easy. It doesn't mean that he's going to grease the skids to make it really fun. But it does mean he'll make your path acceptable. It means that he'll make you able to receive it, able to accept it, able to honor him in the midst of that path. He'll make it manageable. And he does it, David says, for his name's sake. What kind of God would God be if he can't get you through through some little trivial trial, some little difficulty that's nothing in comparison with creating the heavens and the earth or nothing in comparison with Christ's death and resurrection and ascension into heaven? If God can't get you through some little tiny thing like terminal cancer, then what kind of God would he be? And so he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, that he might receive glory, that we point constantly to him, that he gets all the credit. We have a dear brother in our church who has a hobby. His hobby is contracting every form of cancer possible. And when one gets beaten down by cancer, by by prayer and by modern medicine, he decides to get another one. That's been kind of a hobby of him. It's almost like, what's the cancer of the week this week? He's been such a testimony to his family. He's been such a testimony to our church of trusting the Lord to lead him down the correct path, the safe path. But we do have a reasonable question. What if I don't want to go down that path? What if it's dark? What if it's scary? What if it's unsafe? What if out of a thousand different paths God could have chosen for me, I would have taken 999 of them, but the one he picked was the one I didn't want to go down. What happens? Verse 4 tells us, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. I want to point something out to you here in the text. I want you to notice that in verses 1, 2, and 3, David is speaking about God, his shepherd. He makes me lie down. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. He's speaking of the right paths. He's speaking of these things to us. He's giving us information about God. He's telling us about the riches of his shepherd. But now there's a switch And it gets intensely personal. Once David turns to face the valley of the shadow of death, now he speaks directly to the shepherd and he says, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Who is leading me into the valley of the shadow of death? God is. But it's the right path. 
Now, what is the valley of the shadow of death? It's not necessarily speaking literally of death, although there's definite application to this. It's a phrase that means a deep shadow or a deep darkness or gloom. We would say in our vernacular, we would say a really scary place, the place I don't want to go. And it fits the shepherd metaphor that David gives us here. A shepherd at times would have to lead his sheep through these shadowed ravines and riverbeds. Israel is filled with stony mountainsides with hidden caves and canyons. And very often those hidden caves and canyons contain wild beasts or robbers or dangers of all kinds. And the area around Bethlehem where David cut his teeth as a shepherd was no exception to this. So everybody reading this in David's day would understand this. God leads us through this appointed path of of apparent danger and difficulty. It's not the path you would have chosen. I remember in my younger years as a believer, I would often give God options. I would say, here's the suffering that I'm okay with, and here's the suffering I'm not okay with. Just so we're clear, Lord, option A, the things I'm okay with, and just reviewing here, don't want to be too too, uh, uppity here, but option B is the list I'm not okay with. What does the Lord always do? B, 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 right? And then I think maybe if I switched them, I could sort of fool them, but it never works that way. It's always the path I don't want. It's the path I wouldn't have chosen. But your your growing, profound trust in the Lord says the valley of the shadow of death is okay. Because in that shadow, I have with me the light of the world. And so, I will fear no evil. Nothing can harm me outside of God's control, for you are with me. The psalmist says in Psalm 46, 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And now I love this picture. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is two different things. The rod was a club that was used to strike the wild animals that would harm the sheep. The staff is the the shepherd's crook which would keep the sheep on the right path. The point is, God isn't distant. He's not aloof. He's not just objectively observing your trial and making notes. He's intimately intimately involved in the moment-to-moment-to-moment details of every one of your days. He's clubbing back that which he will not allow into your life. And he's using his staff to gently shepherd you exactly on the path where he would have you. Can I put it this way? If we were writing for David, we would say, your big stick and your little stick, they comfort me. That great 19th century Scottish preacher, Alexander McLaren, he wrote this. No wise forward look can ignore the possibility of many sorrows and the certainty of some. The road will not always be bright and smooth, but will sometimes plunge down into grim canyons where no sunbeams reach. But even that anticipation may be calm. Thou art with me is enough. He who guides me into the canyon will guide through it. It is not a dead end, but it opens out on shining meadows where there is a greener pasture. In your minefield, you need a restful peace and you need an appointed path. Now, there's a legitimate question we have to ask. What if my appointed path looks like a scary, dark, dead-end canyon that can only end badly? What if the path leads to tragedy or debilitating permanent injury or circumstances that even lead to death? What if it seems like a big trick? Well, that's where the victory of being in Christ shines like a knight in shining armor. That's where we run like the wind. That's where we sing like an angel. 
That's when Isaiah's great promise he gave to the captive nation of Israel comes bursting out in triumph when he said in Isaiah 40, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Because not only does God give you a restful peace and an appointed path, he gives you a future promise. And here's where true Christian victory comes into play. It's not just that God gives you peace when you land in the minefield. It's not just that God gives you an appointed path through the minefield, scary and dark though it may be. It's that even if in the sovereign, mysterious, bigger than I can comprehend plan of God, I step on a mine, it's okay. If the worst case scenario comes to pass, you can still have victory because that's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. The Father gives a future promise. Jesus told us about the Father's future promise. He said in John 14, 1 and 2, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. Meaning God the Father has been preparing for your arrival in heaven. He's fixed a place for you. It's a place that includes, as Peter says in 1 Peter, an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. The Father gives a future promise. The Son gives a future promise. Jesus is in this future promise. Jesus is part of this future promise. After telling the disciples that in his Father's house are many rooms, he reminds them that I go and prepare a place for you. Now, it's not in the sense of building something. I get a little weary of hearing the definition of, of Jesus going to prepare a place. Well, if he's been building that for 2,000 years, imagine how good it's going to be. Jesus isn't building anything. He's preparing the rooms the Father already has as you would prepare for a guest. New occupants are coming. How can I be certain this is my future? Well, because the Spirit gives a future promise. Same one we looked at last night from Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Listen, if you'll be grabbed and enthralled and just taken by the hope of heaven... Really what that means is that anything that happens now is okay. There's a reason that a third of our Bible is future-oriented. A third of our Bible is prophecy because we need that future hope. As a matter of fact, I would say that the restful peace and the appointed path, are you ready for this? Can literally become pleasant. They can be okay because of the future promise. In fact, it can become so pleasant because your fellowship with God has reached a level that it never has been before that your fellowship can actually feel as though none of the minefield is actually happening. That's possible. That's possible. And for the final time, Psalm 23 provides us with an example and a demonstration of the role of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in giving you a a future promise. Now the metaphor in the psalm switches from God as shepherd to God as your gracious host in one of the most amazing pictures in all of Scripture. Verse 5 You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. This is a present foretaste of a future reality. Now, this is important to understand. In the ancient Near East, 
If you were the honored guest in the house or the tent of an important and wealthy host, that host had an obligation. He was culturally obliged to protect you from your enemies as long as you were his guest. This isn't a hasty meal on the battlefield. This is a calm and secure, leisurely meal under the protective banner of a strong host. Now, the text doesn't tell us what enemies David may be speaking of here. It might be human enemies. It may even be the memory of the wild beasts against which he used to defend his flock as a boy. Either way, when the enemies outside are snarling and growling all around, David feasts in the presence of the Lord. This is a paradox. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of pages have been written in history trying to explain Psalm 23, verse 5. That outside rages the storm of the enemy, the, the roars and the rumbles of all that seems deadly and dangerous, and there's noise and there's tumult. Meanwhile, the host says, may I feel your glass again? Would you like another steak? Perhaps I might show you the dessert tray. And the little soft string quartet in the background. You ever been to one of those fancy steakhouses where they show you the sample of the meat that they could cook for you? Then they bring out the dessert tray with the 10,000 calorie offerings that will satisfy your soul and clog your arteries and make everybody feel better. That's the picture of being treated lavishly by God. And he says, you anoint my head with oil. Beginning as early as the ancient Egyptians, a host in the ancient Near East would anoint the heads and the beards and the feet of his guests with pleasantly scented olive oil. And it took the layer of dust of travel off the head and freshened the one who had just journeyed. It's a total contrast to the dust and the dread and the danger and the distress that's outside. And he says, my cup overflows. My cup overflows. There's no great hidden meaning here. This is just extravagant treatment with more than you need. Let me give you an, an example of your cup overflowing in the negative. A number of years ago, our family was invited to dinner by another family. Very, very sweet. There were 10 of us total. We came hungry. We came ready to eat. If they had had a knife and fork on the table, I would have been holding it ready because we saved up for this meal. And our precious hostess, God bless her, and maybe she be blessed for all of eternity. She came and set before us a 10-inch pizza and one small salad. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but getting out my calculator, according to my calculations, I was going home hungry. There was nothing good that was going to happen there. So I pulled my one-inch slice of pizza and nibbled my way through it and tried to kind of make it last for a while. That was a situation where our cup did not overflow. David describes something just the opposite. He describes a unique, ancient way of of treating your guest. In fact, it's a practice that's still found in parts of the world. In the book published in the early 1800s called Oriental Customs, a guy by the name of Captain James Wilson wrote about an experience that he had that's very much like the one spoken of by the psalmist. And he said this. He was in India. He said, I once had this ceremony performed on me in the house of a great and rich Indian in the presence of a large company. The gentleman of the house poured upon my hands and arms a delightful perfume. Then he placed a golden cup in my hands and poured wine until it ran over onto my forearms, assuring me at the same time that it was a great pleasure to him to receive me and that I should find a rich supply of my needs in his house. That's what David's describing. 
You see, to eat and to drink at the table prepared by the Lord, it's a recognition of a bond, of a covenant, of a commitment that he's made to you. This is the bond that Jesus spoke of when he promised that all who belong to him, he said in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What does this mean? This means that right in the minefield, we can feast. We can feast on the word of God. We can feast on prayer. We can feast on singing the great songs of the faith. We can sing Together, we can feast on the fellowship of the saints. As our dear brother, Dr. Lawson, pointed out last night, we can feast on every blessing in the heavenly places. The feast is always there. And that leads us to the greatest feast, the feast of our certain hope for the future. This is right where David leads us climactically. It's where it has to end. Verse 6, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Goodness is just the sign of God's favor and love. Mercy is sometimes translated steadfast love. It means it's love based in relationship, based in commitment, based in covenant. Goodness and mercy will follow, literally pursue me. I had a person in my counseling office once crying and weeping over the trials that were going on in this person's life. And he said, I feel like I'm being chased all the time by my pain. Well, this is the opposite. In reality, you're being pursued all the time by the goodness of God. And David says, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And this is very interesting. The word for dwell here, it means to return to dwell, to come back to someplace, to return to someplace that you're familiar with. Now, we don't know what situation in David's life prompted the writing of Psalm 23. At the very least, though, David was anticipating returning to normalcy, returning to dwell in a lifelong uh, communion with the Lord, returning to a normal sense of relationship. Maybe he was separated from the tabernacle, the, the formal house of worship. When he says here, the house of the Lord, this is a a technical term used to refer to any place that God has revealed himself, any place where God is worshiped. But listen, it also speaks of the hope of dwelling in heaven with the Lord, the ultimate house of the Lord, an implicit promise of eternal life. You remember that Jesus said, in my Father's house are many rooms and that he promised to bring you there? This is so important for us. The future promise is not just that you dwell in the house of the Lord forever, but the house of the Lord becomes your house. It becomes your house. You know how glorious it is after traveling to get back to your own bed? Dr. Lawson here has been on the road since like 1971, something like that. To just get your own pillow, it's just the right thickness, your, your, your own refrigerator, that familiarity. Listen, 2 Corinthians 5.8 speaks of heaven as being at home with the Lord. Your future home will be more familiar to you than any place ever has been on earth. It'll be restful. It'll be warm. It'll be better than any earthly comfort than you've ever had. Any temporal solace that you've ever had won't be anything compared to heaven. Well, what does this mean for us? What does it mean that God will give you a restful peace and appointed path and a future promise? Very simply, it means... As a victorious believer in Christ, you can say, bring on the minefield. Bring it on. There's nothing it can do to me. It can't, it, look, I'll dance on them. I'll go mind to mind to mind. Boom, boom, boom. Fine. I can take it in the Lord. 
You are so hemmed in, so protected, so sheltered, so shielded on all sides. The Father is giving you comfort. The Son is giving you comfort. The Spirit is giving you comfort. I mean from every direction. Every direction possible. I mentioned earlier that Psalm 23 is by far the most well-known, most popular portion of Scripture, but I think we should note something too and get out of our little Christian bubble for a moment. It's also the most well-known and popular portion of Scripture with non-Christians. Psalm 23 is read at funerals. It's used in political speeches. It's inserted into movies. It's even used in hip-hop and rap and pop stars by artists, uh, songs by artists such as Coolio, Tupac, Kanye West, Jay-Z, Eminem, So we have to be reminded of something. Knowing Psalm 23 is not the same as knowing the shepherd. See, the wrath of God was hurtling towards you. It was coming like a cannonball ready to take you out for all of eternity. And Jesus Christ stepped in the middle and he took it for you. He absorbed it. He absorbed every bit of an eternity in hell that you should have had. John 10, Jesus does say, I am the good shepherd, but he goes on to say, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep and having purchased his sheep on the cross, now the shepherd lovingly leads and guides them. If you're here because a friend invited you or maybe you're still wondering about the state of your soul or perhaps you're listening to this message online, maybe you're coming to realize that you're per profession of faith that you made in a religious setting it wasn't real it was bogus it was completely a sham maybe you've just gone through some religious motions can i remind you that the lord god the triune god wants to lead you in paths of righteousness he wants to lead you to dwell in the house of the lord forever the father wants to lead you John 6.44 says that the father is drawing people leading people to christ the son wants to lead you Jesus said in John 14, 3, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. The Spirit wants to lead you. Romans 8, 14 says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You see, all the comforts, all the benefits of being in the minefield with a protective shepherd They're not available to the one who intellectually says the Lord is a shepherd. All of those comforts are only available to the one who says the Lord is my shepherd. May God the Father, may God the Son, and may God the Spirit lovingly comfort your hearts as he shepherds you. Our Father, there isn't a single person here who isn't in will be or has been in the minefield. And Lord, it's with great hope and joy that we've opened Psalm 23, which is so filled with weapons of spiritual warfare. And Lord, it's our hope and prayer that as you lovingly and sovereignly bring trials into our lives, that our joy in the glory of the Trinity, our knowledge of the loving protection of the Father, our our knowledge of the, the gracious shepherding of the Son, and our knowledge of the loving comfort of the Spirit would so bolster and so surround us that we could literally say this trial was so worth it because of the fellowship with the triune God I'm enjoying right now. And that we could be so enamored by you that we could come out on the other end of a trial and look back and literally say, I would do it again for that sort of fellowship.
Lord, to the one who's here, whose faith is perhaps weak right now, who is shaky, who feels as though he may collapse under the weight of trial, strengthen him. Enrich him with the truths of Scripture, with the truths of this wonderful triunity of a God whom we serve. We love you and we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.